This is the Press Box Podcast. I'm joined today by a guy who wrote for Sports Illustrator for several decades, who founded the daily newspaper, The National, to which the words late and lamented are rightly attached, and who in April 1980 began recording weekly sports commentaries for NPR, the best of which are collected in his new book, I'd Know That Voice Anywhere. Frank DeFord, tell me what's satisfying about writing and recording a radio commentary versus writing a magazine feature for Sports Illustrated. Well, they're both really the same thing, um, because you use the proper word, writing. I mean, that even though I'm speaking when I do a radio commentary, I have written it, and so it's just a question of uh, uh, approaching the ear instead of the eye of of, of the person who's who's listening or or, or reading me. I think I get a certain satisfaction out of it um, beyond that because I'm probably a little bit of a ham. And and when you're doing commentaries, you know, you you don't have to have that serious radio voice. You can you can you can play around and and emphasize certain things and chuckle and laugh and 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 so it's it's a very pleasurable experience for me, which I stumbled into. What does your voice sound like on the air? What does my voice sound like? Yeah. You know, it, it, it struck me rather strange when people started saying that I had a distinct voice. I don't know whether that's good or bad, but distinct, because I never thought of my voice as anything unusual. Um, I think it's probably a combination of factors. I, I, I grew up in Baltimore, which is a terrible regional accent, very nasal. How you doing? That's that's the Baltimore accent. My mother is Southern, so I probably picked up a little bit from her. And then I moved on to Princeton in New York, where I think the... Uh, uh, I might have gained a little sophistication, so it's 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 a combination of all those factors, I guess. So Pe- people tell me that my son sounds like me, and he grew up completely in New York. So I don't know. All I know is um, it seems to be different in some way. You mentioned in the book that when you introduced yourself to Hillary Clinton, she said, "Oh, I'd know you anywhere, Frank." <laughs> that voice wakes me up every Wednesday morning. <laughs> that uh, that did sort of throw me off uh, when the first lady, um, soon to be the uh, presumptive nominee of the Democratic Party, uh, uh, when she when she said she recognized my voice uh, just by saying "Hello, Mrs. Clinton," uh, I I think that. Um, I think that that really uh, sealed sealed the deal. Uh, the, the, the curious thing um, about doing commentaries for NPR—not curious, but interesting—is is that it's a broad audience. You know, and sports is usually, you, you know, you're, you're you're limited whether you're at Sports Illustrated or ESPN or Sports Radio or Sports Pages. You know, you're over here, and and people who don't know 
or care about sports never have any contact with you. But NPR is is like a newspaper. It's like a broad newspaper. And so I talk to a, a lot of people who tell me that they don't really know anything about sports. And, and, and that's, that's kind of neat being able to introduce the subject to to people who, who are unfamiliar with it. And I don't have to do X's and O's and makes predictions and things like that. <laughs> so it's a, it's a pleasure. That's the best gift at all. You don't have to pick the winner of the Super Bowl. I think anybody would be uh, overjoyed not to have to do that. I was reading a radio, one of your radio commentaries from 2013, and this is your lead. Uh, speaking of speaking to an NPR audience, this may sound far-fetched, but football reminds me of Venice. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure you could have written that in the sports page in quite the same way. Do you get to come in through side doors more doing NPR? Um, you gotta. You, you can come in the side door, but you haven't got time enough to you know to really wander around because it's a three-minute spot. And and um, you can waste a little time sometimes in the beginning with with what amounts to a preface, but when you get three minutes, uh, even though that's like a Dostoevsky novel in some respects on 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 the air, um, you have to get to the point right away. You you, you can't you can't dilly dally, and I found that a long time ago. You pretty much have to stick to one subject. You 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 can't throw in a lot of stuff that you'd love to do uh, because it's good stuff uh, if it's not just germane. And and that that I think was the hardest thing that that I had had to learn. Uh, I had to stick pretty much to the point. So it makes you more of a radio makes you more of a vicious self editor then. It's 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 a it's more disciplined because I was used to writing you know long six seven thousand word pieces where you could digress and, and and you could you know drift off and bring in other issues and and um, but the, but but it's also true in in writing long pieces that you you sometimes have to throw away good stuff because as good as it is it doesn't relate to what you're talking about and 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 it can be distracting and that's one of the hardest things i think for a young writer to learn that you just it's not the kitchen sink that you can throw in there and a longer piece is not just longer <laughs> you know it's got to have a certain uh structure and and i think if there's anything that young writers uh, fail at or, or take the longest to catch on to is, is, is structure. Yeah, they've heard they've been badgered with this terrible word, long-form journalism, right? Whereas if the most important quality of a piece is whether it's long or not, <laughs> rather than whether it's interesting or insightful. That long, short, um, they share many, many things. And... and um, I never would have done NPR commentaries if if they'd asked me um, to you know do long pieces. Well, Frank, we'd like you to have you know do the same sort of thing on the radio. The, the appeal was that it was so different from what I was doing for Sports Illustrated, 
and 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 that was that was what attracted me to it that it gave me an opportunity to do something very very different and and yet within the same uh territory the same sports sports territory so it's uh and as i say i'm something of a ham so i enjoyed hearing myself talk <laughs> when you compose these things are you standing in your office reading them aloud practicing how the words sound well um i always you know read them over to myself i i i don't play them back tape them back or anything like that um the key more than anything else is the time it's got to come in at exactly three three minutes you know so that so i'm i'm more i'm more involved in the technical aspect of of the time because uh, otherwise, I mean, if it comes in at three minutes and eight seconds, I, I got to cut eight seconds. Um, and I've also found um, that when I get before the actual microphone in the studio, um, I, cha- I change. Uh, I, I don't sound exactly like I do when I'm sitting and talking to myself. I mean, it, it's... Uh, I'm sure this is true with with actors on stage that that you don't do the same thing every night, even if the lines are the same. You 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 change the emphasis. You know you 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 might pause longer, uh, and so just hearing it back doesn't really do me any good. Did you you recorded a radio commentary in 2001? Where you were talking, it was right after Dale Earnhardt's death, and you said, "Although NASCAR may be too loud and tacky, too fast and garish for many of us, it is a perfectly honorable slice of American life and death." Was part of what you were doing at NPR explaining things like NASCAR to an audience that maybe wasn't uh, watching Daytona and everything every uh, every weekend? Uh, well, I try not to get uh, too detailed, and. <laughs> Far be it for me to try to explain NASCAR. <laughs> I, I don't understand it myself. Um, but I do try to explain, um, to some degree anyway, where a certain sport or a certain part of sport you know, you know, fits in our, in our society. I mean, that's the way that I look at it. I'll leave the... The explaining NASCAR to the guys who understand what carburetors are, you know, I don't get into carburetors. I don't get into pick and rolls. Um, that's that's the expert's job. Um, I'm I'm content to um, to try to to try to show where sports fits in. In our lives, in our culture, and you know, sports is part of every culture in the world. I mean, it 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 really is. It's as much of our lives as 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 music and and art and dance. Uh, it's just that because it's so sweaty and because it's competitive, it it it's not considered as serious an art as as the others. Which is a shame because I think I think that it fits right into that category. Two thousand three, you did a piece for NPR where you argued that the kind of horn doggery and sexual violence that athletes engaged in and was tolerated thirty or forty years ago 
wasn't just tolerated, but it was actually key to an athlete's appeal. You know, he was a ladies' man, a rake. What changed, do you think, in the last couple of years and flipped that on its head where we are not so tolerant anymore? What has changed? You, you mean in terms of violence? In terms of the way we react to it. Um, I think, first of all, that, that there's been a, a change in, in not just in sports, but all across our, our, our spectrum because of the way we get our news now so quickly. And we, we don't digest things and, and they're not as thoughtful as, as, as we used to be. And there tends to be a more sort of visceral response. And, and I think also the trash talking that came into sports and I suppose that dates back, and not just because he's fresh in our minds right now, but, but Muhammad Ali. Um, the trash talking that came into sports, that, that, that sort of wise guy stuff, spilled over from the athletes to, to, to the fans. And, and, and people are more outspoken now. And, and it's, it's, it's the word sportsmanship. Uh, you don't hear much about that much anymore. It's, it's, it's win, win, win. It's always been win in sports. That's the idea. But I, I, I think now it's win at, at all costs. That seems to be the only important thing. Don't win gracefully. Just win. Have you always considered yourself a sports guy? Sports is—I don't think you can—I don't think you can be a sports reporter or writer un, unless you like it or are interested in it. I don't think you can write about religion, say, un, unless it's a subject that interests you. And so, even when I was a kid, yeah, I liked sports. But the difference is that I never set out to be a sports writer. I never figured on that. I just wanted to be a writer. Uh, and, 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 and I drifted into sports because simply the best job offer I got out of college was at Sports Illustrated. And sports grew. Sports exploded then. And I found that I enjoyed writing sports more than I thought that I would because I could write about the personalities and not just the games. And, and so, um, yeah, I, I, I love sports, but when I'm, when I'm writing about them, it's, it's the writing that matters much more to me than, 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 the, than the subject matter, than the sports. Did you, you wrote in one of your books that you were, as a young man, as a young writer at SI, you worried a little bit uh, about spending a whole life chronicling sports. There was more out there yeah. in the world. You ever think about that anymore? No, I mean, it's too late in the day. I'm 77 years old, <laughs> and I made my peace with that uh, a long time ago. I also found that I could... Uh, escape, if that's the word, uh, or divert myself anyhow by by writing novels that weren't about sports. I've only written, a, I think I've written 10 novels now, and only a couple of them have been about sports. And, and that gives me the chance to 
to get away from sports. And I think it's I think it's good for me too as a sports writer because it, it is you know I come back to sports with with more enthusiasm after I've you know left it for a while. Uh, I just just finished a, another novel, a long novel that that has almost nothing to do with sports whatsoever, and, and that was a, a great treat for me. What do you and what does what is appealing about sports when you come back to it after a period away? What's what's exciting about it? after I've been away? Yeah. Look, I have to be honest, and I think anybody who's been in the business would would too. That after you've seen a certain number of games, you just simply cannot keep. I I don't think you can keep up your enthusiasm as, as much as you did when you first started. I mean, it 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 tends to blur. So when I come back to sports, I I I, I need <laughs> I, I need a championship. I need something important. I mean, it's it's you know I I couldn't you know, get enthusiastic about watching the Grizzlies play the Timberwolves in, in, in February. I'm sorry. <laughs> it, 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 but, but, but what's important to me and to other guys who've been in it for a long time is that we can regenerate our interest when something important happens and that we don't become cynics. When I was a kid writer, I saw so many old sports writers who were just cynical about everything. And, and and I didn't want to become that, and I don't think I am that. And just because you can't get excited about every game uh, the same way you did when you started out, that, that doesn't mean that you have to put it down. And that's, that's, a, that's a big difference between being just a little jaded and, and being being cynical. Back in the 70s, you told me this one time, the New York Times tried to hire you as a sports columnist, as an heir to Red Smith, or perhaps the heir to Red Smith, and you turned them down because you thought long pe- you were better at long pieces than you were at columns. In a roundabout way, are these NPR commentaries your way of doing a sports column? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the best decision I made was not going to the times i uh you know it's it's very appealing to go to you know such a wonderful institution i mean in in journalism it's the top of the tree but for me it was you know looking back now uh i'm awful glad that I didn't let my vanity take me away from Sports Illustrated because doing those long pieces was obviously my forte and and, and I would have been a, a, a abandoning it. But yes, it's also fair to say that the NPR commentaries um, were a tremendous substitute for writing columns. They really are little columns and and again it's just that you're listening to what i wrote rather than reading what i wrote and and that's the way that that i approach them i i I sit it's (laughs) i write 
with the same computer and the same fingers <laughs> and everything else, a, a short piece as I do a long piece. It's, 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 it's all a matter of writing, which is what I love to do. There's one in the book on Kobe Bryant from 2004, and you start out by saying, you're Kobe Bryant, and wherever you go, people are staring at you. And that's you doing Jimmy Cannon, isn't it? Um, Kobe Bryant was like a lot of athletes. Um, we sometimes marvel when something has happened to them off the field, off the court as it had to him then, if you remember, he was charged with sexual assault. And and we're amazed that they can um, continue to perform as well as they do. But I think what it was true in the case of, of Kobe Bryant and, and, and others uh, who've been caught in those kind of situations is that the the field, the court, becomes a sanctuary, even though there may be 50,000 or 20,000 people surrounding you, you you get wrapped up in the game, and you are able to escape the personal troubles that may be dogging you. It's, 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 it's odd to think that way, but, but Kobe Bryant was probably more at peace with himself on the basketball court then than he was you know, by himself, uh, and and we, I've, I've seen that too many times, not 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 to recognize it. Um, and, and here he is, ten years, twelve years, twelve years later, um, finally leaving um, the spotlight, and it's going to be interesting to see how he handles it. That's always intriguing. I, I wrote a whole novel on that called Everybody's All-American, the, the, the transition that an athlete must make when he leaves the game is is difficult because he's so young when when he does, and, and he's, he's had such adulation, particularly the stars, and now to adjust to an everyday life is a very difficult thing. That's, I think... Kobe Bryant is going to have a harder time doing that than he than he did back in 2004 when 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 he was potentially facing jail. Muhammad Ali died Friday, and we're still talking about him four days later. What was it like to be? I think this was in 1962. So you were you're pretty fresh out of Princeton. What was it like to be thrown into the back of a car with Muhammad Ali when you were going up to uh, to Albany? Um, Of course, boxing was a lot bigger then. You got to start with that. Yeah. Uh, if 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 a Muhammad Ali came along right now, um, he would be minuscule compared in the public eye to what Ali was then. The heavyweight champion was. Everybody always said when Ali was champion that he was the most visible person on the face of the earth. But it's also true that. Almost every heavyweight champion um, was was that Joe Louis, Rocky Marciano, and 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 so forth. So that he had a stage then that um, he wouldn't have now, and he he had a big stage, and he understood that. Um, I, I first met him about 
that time, I rode with him on a train. He went up to testify in Albany because there was a bill to ban boxing in the New York legislature, and they sent him up, and oddly enough, he just went up by himself. It's amazing that later on he was always surrounded by people. And um, he's not a guy who can stand to be alone. And I had interviewed him briefly, and so he knew me, and we rode back together on the train. You know, he was determined to talk to somebody. And um, I wasn't smart enough to understand then that he was already starting to go through his religious uh, transformation, or at least beginning to question uh, the spiritual life. And he was drawing all kinds of things on paper that I didn't understand. I wish I'd saved him. <laughs> um, but but he was fresh-faced and enthusiastic and um, as complicated a man as he was. And, you know, he could be very cruel and very mean as he was, most particularly to uh, Joe Fraser and Floyd Patterson. Uh, he was always... Uh, the jour de vie, he, he, he was, there was a happiness to him, except perhaps in those last years of his life when, when he was, was so sick and, and beaten down by the dementia that he suffered. Muhammad Ali sired more book deals than, than any athlete in history. There'll probably be more Muhammad Ali books than there will be written about most U.S. presidents, I think it's fair to say. Did you ever, were you ever tempted... <laughs> to jump in on that as so many of your sports writing contemporaries did? No. For the simple reason, just what you said, that so much has been written about him. And I don't think I've read hardly anything original in these last few days. Um, that he's, um, you know, nothing has changed in the last 20 years or more. And, and as a consequence, there really isn't anything new to say. All, everything that was said about his brashness, everything that was said uh, uh, about him beating Sonny List, and everything that was said about his refusing induction into the armed service, all that has been chewed over, um, you know, until now, and now it's just being regurgitated again. So... I don't. I don't know what new can be said. The best book that was ever written about Ali is called "The Ghost of Manila," uh, ghost plural because it's also about Joe Fraser, written by the late Mark Cram, and that analyzes who Ali is in a fair, better way than so many books, which are just. Uh, really just applause for him. And, uh, and anybody wants to read about Ali, I recommend The Ghost of Manila. I couldn't improve on that. About 20 years, oh gosh, 30 years ago now, you published uh, a collection of your magazine pieces called The World's Tallest Midget. And the title was <laughs> referencing that a sports writer, even a great sports writer, was the world's tallest midget. Do you think the status <laughs> of the sports writer has grown or diminished in the intervening years? Um, it's it's grown in most respects in, in that we're accepted 
uh, I think, as serious journalists in a way that we weren't then. And I think that's because sports has become so much more important in our lives, so much more visible, and so that the people who write about it have been swept up, too. On the other hand, because of all the changes in journalism, um, we're diminished in that um, there are not as many of us who are known nationally. You know, we're, we're, we're so, this has happened in, in, in throughout journalism, and, and, and so the number of uh, premier sports writers. I'm not talking about how good they are, but I'm talking about how well known they are has has diminished as newspapers have gone down. And the other thing that I think has affected sports writing is there is so much uh, about statistics and numbers that it's kind of overwhelmed the personal side. And I think that's a, a great loss. I know how important statistics are and, and how important numbers are to sports. But um, if you're going to be a writer, um, or you're going to be a broadcaster for that matter, you, 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 you can't just depend on statistics and, 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 and throw them at us. Uh, willy-nilly, as 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 is, is is the case, so I think that's hurt sports writing. But but in many respects, um, we we we've received more acknowledgement now for being real journalists than than we did when I first got into the game. Another way to look at it too is I think a death of a certain kind of generalist within sports writing. Those were the columnists back in the day and, and a few high-flying yes. magazine feature writers, right, like yourself, who could kind of go from one topic to the other and find out what's interesting. And I think today, if anything, you know, you get funneled into you're an NBA writer, right? So you better know every – you're an insider, right, as they say. Um, and that's changed too. And I think it's sort of – you know, you wonder if Frank DeFord were starting for a fresh out of Princeton now, whether you there would even be room to be – a generalist in the same way that you were. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I would. I don't know what I would do now because it's it's um, it isn't just sports writing that's that's uh, in turmoil. I, we're going through a transformational period, and I, and I don't think anybody knows exactly what's going to come out at the other end. We tend to read only the things that we agree. Uh, everything is is a niche, um, and and you're right that the 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 writers are you know experts. I remember I covered basketball when I was a young writer at Sports Illustrated, and I remember going into the editor after seven or eight years and saying, "I don't want to do this anymore." I said, "I don't I don't want to end up being Mr. Basketball." You know, I, uh, I I never had the interest in being the expert, and some people are fabulous at that and understand. Right, I'm talking about writers or broadcasters understand the game as well as the people who play it. But I was always more interested in in looking at the game rather 
than being the authority. Did you, before I let you go, the you speaking of basketball, you wrote about basketball earlier on in your career, when I think it was very safe to say it was near the bottom of the totem pole of major sports in within sports magazines and newspapers, at least in most cities in the United States. Are you surprised uh, at how basketball writers have a bigger status these days and basketball perhaps itself? And what do you think happened? Well, sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, as a sport grows, um, the people who are covering it are, are going to be celebrated more. By the same token, I, you know, how many boxing writers are there? It used to be that every important journalist would be, a sports journalist, um, would, would be at a championship fight, and every newspaper had a boxing writer. Well, they don't exist anymore. The same thing with 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 horse racing there are very few horse racing riders who aren't race, riding for the for the racing form and, and and on the other hand somebody riding basketball is so much better known today uh, really i got my chance at sports illustrated because basketball was considered sort of a sweaty uh peer, you know tier 2 sport it wasn't really at the same level as 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 baseball and 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 football, um, everything changes, and individual sports um, are so dependent on the personalities, so that there was so much more attention. A classic example for golf when Tiger Woods was dominating it. Uh, tennis was was got. Uh, so much more attention when it had McEnroe and Connors and Billie Jean and 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 so forth, and and those individual sports sink or swim depending on the personalities. Whereas the team sports, because people have allegiance to them, to their pro team, to their college team, to their high school team, they they don't they don't fade and and grow as 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 much as the individual sports though there's no question that football has uh you know become by far the the most important american sport in 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 my lifetime the new book is i know that voice anywhere my favorite npr commentaries frank thanks for coming on brian i enjoyed it very much thank you so very much